All right, we are in Hebrews chapter 1 as we get started this morning. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in the book of Hebrews. We are still in Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. Uh, I was only joking when I thought that the prologue would take us 245 years to work our way through. But uh, I tell you, even then, the depth of doctrine in these first four verses is extraordinary, all right? Uh, We will finish the prologue, and then we will get into the meat of chapter 1 and the meat of chapter 2. And I I intend to actually get through chapter 3 and beyond to the end of the book at some point, which would be an achievement. Um, I could refer to my buddy Glenn Cardigan and ask, uh, how does that go? How do you get past chapter 3? But we'll see. Anyway, God is faithful. Um, I've said many times, uh, I, there are 66 books in our Bible, hard to pick a favorite, but Hebrews is, is my favorite, all right? And, uh, and, and it is for a reason, because to me, Hebrews is, it's our Leviticus, it's our priesthood, it's our, it, it, it spotlights what we are not and what we are, and the, the better, greater, deeper truth of who we are in Christ comes across in the book of Hebrews in a way unlike any other book of the New Testament. So I just love it. And uh, why is it taking 23 years, 24 years to, to finally get, well, even now, I don't think I'm old enough to, to teach this book. It's so deep. It's so powerful. But I want, I want it to shape me. I want it to shape each one of us. It's going to do good things to the saints at Austin Bible Church. I'm excited about that. So let's uh, open with a word of prayer, asking the Father to humble us for this truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you, unworthy and yet made worthy. Father, in Christ, we stand before you in his righteousness, in his name. Father, he is the apostle and high priest of our confession, and it is our privilege, our blessing, our glory to come before you today to present ourselves workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, Father, we call upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding, to give us the ears to hear, the heart to understand. Father, bless us through the living and abiding Word of God today. I thank you, Father, in Jesus' most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, Jesus is the celebrity. And we get that point made over and over and over again. Uh, God may have spoken long ago to the fathers in many portions and in many ways, But in the last of these days, he has spoken to us, and he has spoken to us in his Son. And so the centerpiece of God the Son uh, is presented here, starting in verse 2, and really never losing that focus for the rest of the book. In In the last of these days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And there is so much doctrine to dig out of that. Everything related to inheritance, everything related to heirship. Um, and it all centers on Christ. He is the heir of all things. And that's, that's powerful. Particularly when we understand our role is because we are fellow heirs in Him. The heir of all things. And how powerful does that then become? It doesn't stop there though. He's uh, the appointed heir of all things through whom also He made the world. Or He made the ages. And I appreciate the, the Ionios and the, the ages that we're looking at. Not the cosmos, not the gay, not the... We're talking about the ages and the unfolding plan of God from Alpha to Omega, that unfolding plan and all the ages that have been crafted by Jesus Christ for the Father's good pleasure. And He is the radiance of His glory. That is the... And this is the expression we're going to see this morning, that He is the radiance, the shining forth of the Father's light the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word, the rhema, not the logos, the rhema of his power. And so there's significant doctrine related to Christ as the creator, but also the sustainer of existence. It goes on to say, when he had made purification of sins, or having made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much better than the angels 
as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And that's what we have to tear apart, starting today and however long it takes us. I don't mind, and we started this study in June, I don't mind taking all of June and all of July just just to teach the prologue. And then uh, we'll move into the rest of chapter 1 after that. But there is such doctrine as it relates to this. So let me zip ahead here to uh, the slide we're looking at this morning. Wake up, wake up, wake up. See all slides. Here we go. I want to look at this one. Radiance. He is the radiance of His glory. That is, He is the emanating light that comes from a source that comes from an origin. You realize you go out at sky at night and you're looking up at the stars, you're not seeing the stars. You're seeing the light that left those stars that traveled to this earth that now has reached a point where you and I can see it. All right, We're not actually seeing those stars the billions of miles away that they are. We're seeing the light that has reached us. And that's what we see when we see Christ. When we, that He is the radiance of the Father's glory. And we see the effulgence or the radiance of that glory. The radiance is what emanates from a source and it reaches the observer. And this, uh, this is a concept. This is a concept that we want to appreciate, not just for the reality of what it is, but then also for the implication of what that is. Because as the Father sent the Son, so too, guess what? As the Son sent us. And we too are lights in this world of darkness. And we are supposed to shine forth. And we represent not ourselves, but we represent our Father and and His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this concept is one that we want to take with us in in all that we do, in our families, in our homes, in our workplace, and everywhere we go. The radiance is what emanates from a source and it reaches to the observer. And that's who Jesus Christ is. God Himself cannot be seen, but the Son has been seen. And that's the point. And uh, Jesus makes it over and over again. It has a dominant theme in the Gospel of John. I believe, and I've shared this before as well, that that the book of Hebrews had an impact in the Apostle John, and that it it, it was in his thinking when he crafted John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And we see all of these aspects of deity and creation and everything in uh, Hebrews 1 we see now expressed in John 1. So join me there, let's take a look at this. Because He comes from the Father, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. All these uh, principles that we identify with in his hypostatic union and his virgin birth in uh, how God became man and, and dwelt among us are presented here. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And uh, I'm going to stress this and I'm going to stress it again because being is different from becoming. And John makes that point powerfully. Hebrews makes that point powerfully. And if we lose that, we're wasting our time. We've got to pay attention to that. Was speaks of a continuous existence. Eternally was. Eternally, the Son has always been in fellowship with the Father. Always. There was never a beginning to God the Son. Okay? And then we have the being statements. God is the only I am in the universe. He was in the beginning with God. These are absolute statements of deity that only God can make claim to. You and I can't make claim to these things. Any, any M statement I want to make, I can rephrase as a, be, as a became statement, okay? I am a pastor, but I became a pastor. I am a father. I became a father. There, I cannot make any I am statement related to myself without being able to rephrase it as an I became because that's who we are. We're finite beings. We're not self-existent. All right. Keep that in mind. I'm making a big point now that's going to bear some fruit in about 20 minutes. All right. Because Jesus became better than the angels. And that almost is an insult because, well, wait a minute, he's always been God. How, how could he become better than the angels if he's always been better than the angels? Okay. Well, because he wasn't always better than the angels. The word became flesh. And some of these are the deepest things that we consider when we recognize it just flies in the face of satanic evil. I'll say more on that here shortly. So um, John 1.1, 1, 1, John 1, two, all of this in His pre-existent glory. All things came into being through Him. Apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And, and this agreement with, uh, with Hebrews 1, that He's the Creator of all things, through whom also He made 
the world, right? Jesus Christ is the creator. And not only that, that the God-man is the creator, okay, in his hypostatic union. In him was life, and life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So this introduction to John, I think, is shaped by Hebrews 1. I think it's shaped by the, uh, the study that we're going through here this morning. Now, there was a forerunner, someone who was not the Christ, but he came as a witness, and that's John the Baptist. And we get his details here in verses 6 and following, uh, 6 through 13. But then verse 14, and the word became flesh. And here's ginnamai, here's becoming, here is a change, okay? Here is now the addition of something he's never had before. God the Son has never had a body, a human body, until the, the virgin conceived and bore a child. And now God enters into space-time in the finite limitations of a physical body, a monopresent dust creature, all right, such as you and me. And he identifies with us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. But what did we see? Anybody that saw the physical humanity of Jesus Christ, that saw him, that ate with him, that walked with him, what did they see? Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And by seeing the Son, we've seen the Father. We have patterns of this. We have statements of this that get made. And so he came to reveal the Father. No one can see the Father, so the, so the visible manifestation comes to be seen. John 1.15, John testified about him and cried out, saying, this was he of whom I said. Isn't that great? Bible teachers love to say something ahead of time and then have it validated and then say, see, I told you about this. He is the one of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. The coming prophet has been from the very beginning. Verse 18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. And we, we uh, spend a lot of time in this verse on different occasions as well, in different ways. And you can appreciate the fact if you attend an exegetical local church, because exegesis is the vocabulary we have there for explain. Okay? In other words, tearing it down, breaking it down, explaining everything in all the nitty-gritty detail, giving you the full picture on everything there is to know. And sometimes, uh, I admit, it's tedious. Sometimes it's lengthy. Sometimes it's uh, to, to get every last nth degree detail out of a certain thing requires humility and patience and appreciation that God has chosen to give us those kind of details. All right, because he didn't have to, <laughs> but he did. And the example is set by Jesus. Because what has Jesus done but reveal the Father in every nth degree detail, exegeting the Father? And I appreciate that. And so light comes from a source. Radiance is what emanates from a source. And uh, it's beautiful to me. I, I get a thrill every time atheist uh, physicists start debating the nature of light. <laughs> and they want to go back and forth about waves versus particles. They want to go back and forth about different things. And uh, to me, it's a beautiful thing because it, it impresses upon the human mind, the most brilliant of human minds that realize that, that thinking about light is a good thing to do. All right? And there's a reason why. God has designed it that way. Let there be light is the first act of creation. And that's before sun, moon, and stars on day four. All right? There is a, there is a powerful doctrine related to that. Still in the Gospel of John, when we get to chapter 14, we come to one of my favorite portions of the whole Life of Christ series is the night on which he's betrayed. <clears throat> and I love going through these chapters. I love, they're all red, okay? From the point that, that the traitor leaves, Judas Iscariot leaves the upper room in chapter 13 and verse 30. And as soon as that door closes, it's like, uh, it's like boom, okay? The unbeliever's gone. Judas goes out to fetch the soldiers. The door closes. And the moment that happens, Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. <laughs> Isn't that powerful? That's 1331. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. There is such a, a truth here. As soon as the, the traitor is gone, it's, it's, there's no turning back. This is the night. 
the arrest is going to happen. Everything up to this, he has been delivered out of their hands because his hour had not yet come. But tonight it's happening. Tonight he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be arrested. He's going to go to the cross. He'll be on the cross within 24 hours of this event. Okay? And all of this doctrine, there's so much doctrine here. In the end of chapter 13, chapter 14, 15, 16, he's giving them really stuff they can't handle yet. Material that pertains to the church age and they're not equipped to deal with it yet. He promises them the Holy Spirit is coming and they're not equipped to deal with that yet. And he says, you'll understand it when the Holy Spirit comes, okay? Which you don't get now, but you will. And all of these things, you can just scan down the page and I guarantee you, almost every time you see black letters in these chapters, it's a confused disciple asking a question. <laughs> All right, fair enough. So 1336, Simon Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Verse 37, why can't I follow you right now? I'll lay down my life for you. Chapter 14 and verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Every time, just glance at the page. If you find black letters on these pages, it's a confused disciple with questions and and fears. All right? This is the night in which Jesus is betrayed. And so there's Philip's question there in in, uh, verse 8, chapter 14 and verse 8. Because, see, uh, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's our gospel. That's our biblical message. That's our reality. It is an exclusive way. It has to be. If there was any other way for us to be redeemed, then Jesus would not have been made flesh and dwelt among us. He would not have gone to the cross. The Father would not have sacrificed His Son son, if there was a plan B or a plan C or any other plan that could have accomplished the purpose. So I am the Hadas, the Aletheia, and the Zoe. No one comes to the Father but through me. He goes on to say, if you had known me. Now, that's a, that's a remarkable statement. He's talking to people who have known him. But for the sake of this discussion, he says, you haven't. You've walked with me for three and a half years. You've eaten with me. We've gone through all this stuff. I've taught you all this doctrine. You don't yet know me the way you're going to in the church age when the Holy Spirit reveals this. When you are baptized into union with Christ. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. This is just counterfactual. You haven't, so you don't. But, not yet, but, from now on, from now on, you have seen him, you know him, and have seen him. And so this hinge event becomes huge, all right? This this sets the table for what's going to happen at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descends, when the church begins, when we become members of the body of Christ in Christ, and we receive for the first time ever a stewardship of human beings on this planet becomes indwelled trinitarily by the Father, by the Son, by the Holy Spirit. There is a relationship we have to the Godhead, to the Godhead because our victorious Savior is seated at the Father's right hand in glory. That is powerful, okay? So, from now on, you know Him and have seen Him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? All right, so there we have it. And here we have the um, beautiful truth. I love the way that God designed it. I love the way that He designed biology. He designed procreation. He designed uh, just the way that little boys look like their daddies, little girls look like their mommies. There's, a, there's a, a benefit to that beyond the cuteness of it is the reminder that the Son is in the image of the Father and that we have a plan that God has put into effect that two of the three members of Trinity are identified as Father and Son and that there is doctrine that is communicated when we observe these things in daily life. He goes on. Anyway, this whole stretch down to verse 14 uh, centers on the paterology here of this that, that they don't understand on this night, but they will start to get in the church age when the mystery doctrine is unfolded. Do you, uh, Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but, his Father, but the Father abiding in me does his works. 
Let me tell you something, that was not unique to Christ. It was at the time, but it continues today. It is God who's at work in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. God the Father works in us as He worked in Christ. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. Greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. A lot of people don't like that verse. They deny it. They say, well, that's that's ridiculous. That's silly. Take that out of the Bible. How can we do greater works than Christ? Okay? Read it for what it's saying. Read it for what it's saying. It's not saying that what we do is, you know cosmologically more significant than the work of the cross at redemption. What it's saying though is what has he been doing during his earthly ministry? What has he been doing in revealing the Father? And what are you and I going to do in revealing the Father? It's going to be greater than what he did. Okay? Because he didn't have an advocate seated at the Father's right hand. (laughs) He wasn't there yet. But we do. We have an advocate seated at the Father's right hand. He didn't have the Holy Spirit as the helper he is today. He had the Old Testament uh, pouring out of the Holy Spirit as a prophet of, of Israel. He did not have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we have today, baptizing us into union with the Godhead. Think about everything we have we take for granted. Old Testament believers didn't have any of that. Greater works will we do. Jesus in his first advent, great, he did great works, but he was monopresent where he went. In the church age, where is Jesus going today? Jesus is going to Kenya. Jesus is going to Texas. Jesus is going to Ukraine. Jesus is going, he's in the body of Christ all over this planet. Jesus is in India. Okay? Everywhere. In believers, in the body of Christ, spirit indwelt believers with Jesus as their advocate are going to this lost and dying world and revealing the Father. Greater works than these. So, um, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Isn't that beautiful? Don't preface your prayers based on what you think you've earned or deserved. That's a waste of time. <laughs> okay? I've earned and deserved the lake of fire, so that's not going to shape my prayer life. But go and pray and ask based upon the Father's desire to glorify the Son and the Son's desire to please the Father. And you'll have a prayer life with a dynamic behind it. That's how we're commanded to ask. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And this is what we're talking about. This is the light that shines forth from a source. And it reaches the observers. If it reaches the observers, okay? So if the light is turned on and no one sees it, is the light still on? Sorry. (laughs) The point though, when the light reaches, whoever's seeing it, they're the ones that see it. 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul expands upon this. And there's even a bit of a, not really a play on words, but there is a a, a cognate word here in 2 Corinthians 4 that relates to the radiance. The radiance of Hebrews is a a hapax legomena. It only shows up that one time in the whole New Testament. So it's, it's, it's a very short word study. But it does have a, a, a related form, a cognate form, that is used here in 2 Corinthians 4. Paul uses it when he talks about Satan blinding the minds of the unbeliever. So he says, uh, you know, what we have, we have this ministry of reconciliation and we, we get to uh, reveal the Father and um, the veil is lifted in Christ. Such a neat conclusion to the end of chapter 3. But we have a ministry now in chapter 4, and we don't lose heart. And uh, it says in verse 3, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to the perishing ones. Remember, we're saved by grace through faith. We're no longer perishing ones. But we're surrounded by them. (laughs) This whole world is full of perishing ones. And they've got the wool pulled over their eyes. Okay, The satanic wool, the cosmos wool, is pulled over their eyes, and Satan is busy doing this. This is a veil. And the veil uh, that Satan uses here, it says, in whose case the God of this world, really it's the God of this ion, this age, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see. 
And here's where we have our cognate expression to the, to the radiance of Jesus Christ. In other words, they might not be radiated. They might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He is the image of God. That's perfect agreement with Hebrews 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the character, the stamp of that invisible God. And so Satan blinds the minds of the unbelief. He's got to throw that veil over there because Satan does not believe in the total depravity the way Calvinists teach it, all right? Because he believes that you and I can respond to the gospel. You and I can believe. So he works hard to veil the minds of the unbelievers. That's verse 4. Um, verse 5, We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness. That's what God said. Let there be light. Is he talking about the sun, moon, and stars? Or is he talking about his son? Is he talking about Jesus Christ and the role of what the God-man is going to do in revealing the Father? The one who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is now our ministry. This is what we get to do. Jesus isn't walking around this world anymore. He is seated at the Father's right hand till His enemies be made a footstool for His feet. You and I are the ones that are walking around this world these days. It's Christ in us. It's the Father in us. This is what we're doing. We are now the emanation. We are now the, the uh, radiance of the Father's glory. You ever think of it in those terms? We need to. We are now the radiance of that glory shining forth to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And I hope when, when folks see us, they're not seeing us, they're seeing Christ. They're seeing the Father. Because if they're seeing us, if we make ourselves the issue, try to turn us into the celebrity, what a, what a pathetic waste of time that would be. You end up with a cult following. You end up with a religion instead of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Radiance. I love it. Radiance emanates from a source and reaches the observer. Secondly, we observe that Jesus is the image or the character. He is the character of God's nature. Let me rephrase this. Let me just throw two Greek words in here and use them as English words. Jesus Christ is the character of God the Father's hypostasis. You ever study hypostatic union? This is our Greek word, hypostasis. Hypostasis is used here, and we don't think about hypostatic. We think about hypostatic as if it, it means two things at once. No. For Jesus, it does, because Jesus is fully God and fully man. So Jesus' nature, his hypostatic union is, is two-sided. It is two-fold. He is undiminished deity. He is true humanity. Yes. So he is, that's his hypostasis. That is his nature, he is by nature the God-man. Okay? So don't think of hypostasis. The, ver- the, the term does not speak of two in any way. It does not speak of twin in any way. It does not speak of... It just speaks... It's the word for nature. God has a nature. You have a nature. I have a nature. We all have a nature. Every one of us has a hypostasis. Okay? And so it's useful to study, and here it's used. In fact, it's only used five times in the New Testament. Hypostasis. Okay? But it's useful to think about what is the nature of God? What is the nature of the Father? What is the nature of the Son? What is the nature of the Holy Spirit? They're all co-equally God. It's three persons in one God. But if they have three persons, could they have three natures? They're one in essence, they're one in attributes. I, I grant you that. Okay, and, and I still, to this day, I want to develop it. I, I coined an expression, and, and so if someone steals it from me, I'm going to be real upset. But it's the it's the personality, essence, character, attributes, and nature of God. And it spells pecan, which is a cool Texas thing. Okay? So the personality of God, the essence of God, the character of God. That's where His grace comes in. He's gracious in His character. His attributes and His nature. A lot of times we blend essence and attributes. We combine those together and create 
put them in boxes, right? Essence box. And we have, we have studies on what God's like. Righteousness, justice, eternal life, omnipresence, all those things. We can talk about His essence. We can talk about His attributes. But I think we also need to recognize His personality. That the Father is a person. The Son is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. They are distinct persons with personality. What's His character? Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. What's His nature? Now the Son is the character of the Father's nature. That's what this verse says. He's the character. And the Greek word is character. C-H-A-R-A-K-T-E-R, character. Hapax legomena. Again, it's only used here. So many uh, unique terms are in this text. But it's used to speak of a stamp or an image, a coin, for example. You pull a quarter out of your pocket. I was going to bring one this morning. I forgot. You bring a quarter out of your pocket and George Washington's face is right there on that quarter, right? And that because the character of George Washington has been imprinted on that coin. In fact, there's an apostolic usage of this in the church fathers. Ignatius to the Magnesians. Just as there are two coinages, the one of God and the other of the world, and each of them has its own stamp impressed upon it. That's what we're talking about. And in, so he's using kind of a metaphor here to explain that we're in the world but not of the world, and there's God's image and there's the world's image. He, he, he uses coinage as his illustration. The one of God, the other of the world, and each of them has his own character, stamp impressed upon it. So the unbelievers bear the stamp of this world. The unbelievers bear the the character of this world. But the faithful in love bear the stamp of God the Father through Jesus Christ, whose life is not in us unless we voluntarily choose to die into his suffering. And I think he's making a monster point here. Ignatius is making a huge point here that a lot of us overlook, is that not every born-again believer is living in the Word of God. Not every born-again believer is a disciple. But until you die to self and live to God, until you're, you're uh, willing to be that disciple living and abiding in the Word of God, I think it's interesting that, yes, unbelievers bear the stamp, but the faithful in love bear the stamp of God the Father through Jesus Christ. If you're a carnal believer, are you truly emanating that light to this lost and dying world? No, you're walking in darkness same as the unbelievers walking in darkness. Anyway, that was... Ignatius to the uh, Magnesians, if you read such things. All right. He's the character of God the Father's hypostasis. As Jesus put it, seeing him equals seeing the Father. If you've seen, I mean, I figure if I was face to face with George Washington today, I'd know who he was because I've seen his image so many times. I know what he looks like. Okay? That's the old Stephen Wright joke. Do you think if George Washington was ever asked for his identification, he pulled out a quarter? would you've just seen his image if you've seen him you've seen the father and uh different things we had funeral last sunday and we saw a little kid and no doubt who his father was i mean man a little clone of his dad running around see that's that's the way it works as paul put it colossians 1 15 jesus is the image of the invisible god He is the visible thing of the invisible. He created both visible and invisible. And He Himself is the visible of the invisible. You can't see the Father, but you can see the Son. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so it's curious to me. Let's look at Colossians 1. It's so parallel to Hebrews. Parallel to a lot of things that we're studying here lately. The fact that he is the firstborn of all creation, remember that? When did, uh, when did God the Son receive his human nature? Okay, The easy answer is in the Bethlehem manger. The biblical answer goes back to the foundation of the earth. It goes back to the alpha moment, the boundary of eternity past and time, before his work of old. And so Colossians agrees with that. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the seen thing of the unseen, the firstborn of all creation. Prototakos, firstborn. Not just firstborn in preeminence, but literally. The first birth ever was today I have begotten thee. 
For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. How about that? Paul agrees with John in John 1. Paul agrees with Hebrews in Hebrews 1. He created everything, both visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. Why are we here? Okay. And, and to me, it's, it's curious. I like what the intelligent design people are doing. I like what they're doing when they, when they point to order in, in creation and, and, it, and they rightfully, logically say that it shows an intelligent mind designed that, right? If you see design, does that not demand a designer? Clearly. Okay. And, and I think it's good how they make that approach, but they should carry it, if they could, one additional step beyond that. Our, our universe is fine-tuned for humanity. And that's a beautiful thing. Uh, the, 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 it's an anthropocentric centric creation. And the reason why is because God's plan is centered in His Son. And His Son is the God-man. See, I think that there's a, a larger picture to tell. When you read through Proverbs 8 and you see that Jesus Christ created everything, but His delight was in the sons of men. Not in the angels, but in the sons of men. It's not to the angels that he's going to subject the world to come concerning which we're speaking, but to the sons of men, to Jesus Christ. See, It's not to the angels that he said, sit on my right hand. It's to Jesus Christ, the God-man. So the centerpiece of this is Jesus Christ. And as the God-man, it's then us in Christ as the Father's plan unfolds. In any event, I can save myself some time if I cheat and show you this verse while we're here already. Verse 17. So we, we, we grab the, the fact in verse 16 that all things have been created through Him and for Him. It's all for Jesus. And then verse 17. He is before all things, temporally and spatially and preeminence and time and everything. But then in Him, all things hold together. <coughs> Hebrews is going to tell us this, that he sustains all things. He upholds all things by the, the, the rhema to the, the, the word of his power. The rhema of his dunamis. Okay? Jesus Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. You want to know why every molecule of your body doesn't just explode for no reason? Well, it's not for no reason. It's for this reason. It's because Jesus Christ sustains the, the physical universe. He sustains everything. And then until he gives that word, when he does give that word, though, look out. <laughs> Spectacular. Because every fabric of existence is, is consumed with heat, we're told. The, the, all matter in the universe explodes. And that's uh, heaven and earth flee away. We have the destruction of the heavens and the earth by fire. Every molecule of matter becomes energy. And the only thing that keeps it from happening right here, right now, is the word of Jesus Christ. He's waiting to do that. In the Father's will, He's waiting to do that. See, we think, um, we think that He's so slow. <laughs> We're impatient. Why hasn't the rapture happened yet? And, and that's only one thing. We're waiting for the rapture. That's only one thing we're waiting for. How many things is Jesus waiting for? How many things is the Father waiting for? Waiting for His enemies to be made footstool for His feet. Waiting for uh, the bride to be complete, to call the bride home, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Waiting for the destructions of the heavens and the earth by fire. Waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Waiting for a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. That's a lot of waiting. (laughs) You know? That just doesn't happen overnight. That's going to require... 999 generations to start having babies. That's going to require 998 generations, 997 generations. Okay? Think about this. And it's promised for those who love Jesus Christ. So there's a lot of waiting, and uh, we get to do this. Uh, But He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Jesus Christ is the radiation of the Father's glory, and He upholds all things by the word of His power. The twin principle here in uh, verses 3 and 4. Jesus Christ bears all things as the designated agent of God the Father's power. Of course, what do you expect? Love bears all things, does it not? Who's Jesus Christ? (laughs) 
but the love of God. Okay? And He bears all things. He sustains all things. He's the creator of all things. This, this, I, I get into these discussions. I don't know why. <laughs> I'm glutton for punishment. I, I talk to global warming people. I talk to atheists and, and other lunatics. Okay? They, are, they are out of their minds. Absolutely, they have so swallowed lies that they believe are truth. So much so that they think I'm the lunatic, okay? They think I'm the, the nut job that believes the Bible. All right? I'm the moron. I'm the, but you know what? I sleep at night. <laughs> I sleep very well at night. I'm not worried about global warming. I, because I know where the real global warming, I already said, is when the, Jesus Christ gives the word, it's not just global warming, it's intergalactic, you know, universe warming. Everything consumed in great heat. And until Jesus gives the word, all right? I think it's, I think it's arrogant. Human arrogance. Like We're impacting the planet. We're contributing carbon. Are you kidding me? Mount Pinatubo goes up and there's more fluorocarbon carbons in the atmosphere than all of the industrial world put together okay it's it's staggering to me but then again so when i talk to these people and and i see fear and i ask them i said this really bothers you doesn't it? you're you're afraid for this and and they are they're afraid of the kind of planet their kids are going to live in the kind of planet their grandkids are going to live in they think i i love dirty water or something i want to poison their kids okay i don't love dirty water Who, who wants that but the point is, because see, they don't believe there's a God who created everything. They don't believe that there's a God that can keep it all together. That there's a God that's sustaining everything. To me, it's a powerful comfort knowing that Jesus Christ is seated at the Father's right hand and He is controlling everything. That's a great thing. He is the designated agent of God the Father's power. You know, think about it. What can light do when it hits something? Well, it can expose it, it can illuminate it, it can warm it. But what if it's too much? Like a laser beam could destroy it. So when the eminence of the Father's glory reached this world, could he not have just obliterated everything? And instead, he illuminated everything. All right. So again, it's Hebrews 1, 3. Is the, um, the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. All things. Not just all kinds of things, all things. Bugs me to death. People want to get goofy with their adjectives. All right. All things. All, not just all kinds of things, all things. That gets dangerous, by the way. You start debating that with some folks, then Jesus didn't die for all our sins. He just died for all kinds of sins. All right. And we haven't been forgiven of all our sins, just all kinds of sins. And there might be some unforgiven sins. There might be some for whom Christ did not die. And so they, they change all to all kinds of and, and uh, start playing with language that way. Bugs me. All right. Colossians 1.17, we already read, upholds uh, that he is the uh, firstborn of all creation, upholds all things by the word of his power. Um, in him all things hold together. Second Peter 3.7 2 Peter 3. You ever heard of 2 Peter 3? All right. See, some people might count God as being slow. And mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust. That's our generation. We've got a culture of mockers that think they know everything. And they say, where is the promise of His coming? And notice it's, it's, they, they're going to start attacking eschatology first thing. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. It's like they attended you know, a modern liberal arts college and they're so steeped in uniformitarianism. It's, all, it's always been this way. It's always going to be this way. It's the way it always has been. You know, it takes billions and billions of years for slow changes over time with evolutionary natural processes, blah, 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 blah. Jesus isn't coming back. They'll tell you that. You're wasting your time. 
In fact, eschatology, don't bother preaching eschatology from the pulpit. It's a waste of time anyway. You just want your people to, to feel good about themselves. It's moralistic, therapeutic deism. Be nice and uh, be happy that you're okay. No, we should be warning. It, while they say this, while they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world of that time was destroyed being flooded with water. Remember that? <laughs> okay. And we can debate if that's the Noah deluge or the angelic tohu wabohu water destruction. I think it's what we're talking about, the world that was. But, the, but by his word, the present heavens and earth. So there's the, the world that was, now there's the present heavens and earth. Okay, you are here, that's where we are. And then there's the world to come, concerning which we're speaking. He did not subject to angels the world to come. The world that was, that was the angels. The world that is, that's humanity. And the world to come, Jesus Christ and the sons of men. Okay? Angels are simply the servants. They're the servants to those who will inherit salvation. That's why the first shall be last. Okay. Uh, But by His word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. It's a present passive participle of thesaurus okay they are um, they are being saved they're being stored up they're being reserved for fire not water but fire and uh, the destruction kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men i believe the tohu abohu water judgment destroyed the angelic uh, world and now fire judgment is what we have coming up So do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. God's eternal does not operate on our timetable. The Lord is not slow, as some count slowness, but He's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Okay? You realize every unbeliever that rejects the gospel in the church age is going to be left behind to face Antichrist, to face Satan, to face the unrestrained mercies of one who has no mercy. All right? Hell itself is emptied out. 200 million demons flood this place. Don't want to be stuck around when that's happening. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Doesn't that kind of go without saying? If the whole planet is gone, then aren't the works also gone? That's the whole point. It's the works that are being consumed. It's all the production of satanic rejection against the will of God. And so there's a point being made with respect to this. All right. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be (laughs) in holy conduct and godliness? Don't ever lose sight of the fact that our God is a consuming fire. All right. We, uh, yes, we are intimate. Yes, we are sons. Yes, we are a family. And yes, because of our church age intimacy with the Father, perhaps we have a tendency to lose that fear and trembling. Hebrews will get it back for us. Hebrews will get it back for us big time, okay? With some of the deepest warnings that are given in all of Scripture. Our God is a consuming fire. What sort of people ought you to be? If He's the sort of God that'll do this to the universe, what sort of people ought we to be? We ought to be the sort of people that will survive this destruction. We're actually residents of the new creation. We have our new nature already. The new heavens and new earth haven't appeared yet, but we have. We're here in our new nature. Isn't that beautiful? I shared this a couple weeks ago and people went, ooh, I got an ooh moment out of the congregation a couple weeks ago. I'll try it again. Maybe I'll get another ooh moment. But think about it. That six-day account, he makes the air... Then he makes the birds. He makes the water, then he makes the fish. He makes the dry land, then he makes the animals. He makes the uh, heavens, then he makes the angels, the heavenly host. God has always created the realm and then populated the realm with the beings suitable to that realm. Okay? Lake of fire. He made the lake of fire suitable for Satan and his angels. It's suitable for the lost. They will have an eternal existence in a realm suitable for their nature. Now think about it though. You and I, we are a new creation in Christ. That's already done. And for the first time ever, God populated a people for whom the realm is not yet here. 
Yeah. The new heavens and new earth are not yet here. But we are. The new people are. The new creation. We're already here. Isn't that amazing? For the first time God's ever done that. The inhabitants of the new creation are already in this old creation. Waiting. That's why, according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay? And I know you've heard that before. All right? Jesus Christ is the designated agent of God the Father's power. Okay? You know, and you talk to these atheists and they taunt and they mock and they say, well, if God wants me to believe in Him, why doesn't He just come down here and show Himself? He did that. Hello? Okay? And He's still doing that. That's why I'm here. Because I'm in Christ. And I'm begging you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled unto God. He's doing that right here, right now. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay? And <laughs> you keep taunting him like that, we'll just come down here. Yeah, well, when he does come down here, it's not, it's, it's, it's wrath of God time, right? The second advent, Armageddon, very few unbelievers are going to even survive that event. And then the last stragglers that somehow survived, sheep and goat judgment, they get thrown into hell. Every unbeliever will be thrown into hell. No unbeliever will survive to the millennial kingdom. So, the rest of verse 3 then, in verse 4, let's get a start on this. This, uh, this will take us into uh, July. Oh, we're in July already. Okay. Take us past June into July. So much more in this prologue. All right. When he had made purification of sin. So, um, and some of these particle, participles are interesting. It strings us all together. Um, God spoke and then he spoke. So having spoken, he spoke in his son, whom he appointed, heir of all things, through whom he made the ages, who being the radiance of his glory. And then he made the ages, who being the radiance of his glory, uh, in the exact representation of his nature, upholding all things by the word of his power. And then when or having... He made no, he made, okay, so having made purification of sins, when he did that, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. All right, so what is this doctrine about? When he made purification of sins. Is that the same as saving me? Is that the same as forgiving my sin? Is that the same as removing sin? Why is the emphasis here on purification rather than removal? What is it that's being purified anyway? Can you purify a sin? What, what does it mean? What is he purifying? And we're going to learn about this. In fact, it becomes the con, I, this, this introduction here gets expanded in chapter 9. The role of Jesus Christ when he ascends into heaven and he cleanses the heavenly temple. Purification of sins, plural, has a different significance from taking away sin, singular. And we've got to recognize this. There's a lot that he did. And and there's a lot that goes into redemption and reconciliation and expiation, purification. All right? Then they're all connected. Don't get me wrong. So while I'm telling you they're separate things, they are connected because they all happen on, on the cross. They all happened at that once and for all event where the God-man operated as the great high priest. Okay? But the, the emphasis that is placed on each item, I think, is useful to distinguish between them and to, and to delineate them in different ways. All right? And, and in some respects, if you fail to do that, I think you end up with more confusion. And, and I like to keep things simple. And so by delineating the differences, then we can keep things simple. That purification of sins, plural, has a different significance from the taking away of sin, singular. Sin, singular, is, a, is an estate. Sin, singular, is the lost estate of Adam. Uh, in John 1, 29, uh, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay? And there's a doctrine in that. We, we've... We're thankful for that. 
And, uh, and, and the Old Testament animal sacrifices taught different aspects. There was a, a scapegoat. There was a goat that got walked away, gone. Okay? He didn't die. Isn't that great? Lucky goat. Okay? Because there were a lot of other goats that did die. Okay? There were a lot of uh, sheep and, 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 and cattle. I mean, the, the animal sacrificial system butchered a lot of animals. The scapegoat didn't get to... He, he was just walked away. Okay? Um, so taking away the sin of the world, that's a doctrine there. We can rejoice over the fact that the wages of sin is death, singular. That there's an estate in Adam that we're a part of by our Adamic birth. And lost humanity goes to hell for our estate in Adam, not for the personal sins that we've accomplished. Okay? Now, he dealt with those also. But separate the concepts, and I think you do better. So Titus 2.14, we have purification, we have cleansing uh, Hebrews 9.14, there's purification, there's cleansing. All right, which one do I want to do for? I'll grab Titus and then Hebrews 9. Titus 2.14, um, so we're looking for the... Goodness, Titus 2.11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. You see the emphasis there? It's on the daily outworking of our salvation, is it not? It's on how we live. That's not how we're living for Him. It's how we're expressing righteousness. It's not, for, it's not a positional emphasis. It's an experiential emphasis. It's the ongoing sanctification of our Christian walk. And that's what this is about. It's like the, the confession cleansing as opposed to the salvation cleansing. The, the foot washing as opposed to the full bath. Right? We've had this doctrine. This should be familiar to us. And so... Yes, I'm saved. Yes, I'm forgiven. Yes, my sins are saved. Yes, I'm going to go to heaven when I die. But beyond all that, there is now a present cleansing that happens. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, keeps on cleansing me from all sin. I am being cleansed. I am being purified. I am a people for His own possession. Zealous for good deeds. I want to, I want to deny the ungodliness and worldly desires, live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for that blessed hope daily today i'm looking for that blessed hope today i want that trumpet to sound i'm disappointed it didn't happen yesterday now um hebrews 9 14 i'm running out of time we'll have to come back to this next week but um hebrews 9 14 we're going to see verse 14 we're going to see verses 22 and 23 we're probably going to read the whole chapter by the time we're done with it but um Look what the blood of Christ does that it never could that Levitical animal sacrifices could never do. And um, verse eleven says, "When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he was not a Levitical priest. He was from Judah. He came from a tribe of which the Old Testament said nothing about priesthood. When he appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle." not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. So think about that. I'm running out of time, but think about that. He hung on the cross. The veil of the earthly temple was rent in two. And he never went in there, didn't have to. Had no business going in there. Just exposed an empty room. They didn't even have an ark, okay? They didn't even have an ark in Solomon's temple, okay? The veil was rent and an empty room was exposed. But he entered into the more perfect temple. He ascended to the Father. He cleansed the heavenly temple with blood, not blood, not his own, but with his own blood. And that's what Hebrews 9 details. That's what Hebrews 1 introduces when he made purification for sins. He sat down at the Father's right hand. And there is a, an emphasis to be made there on the heavenly reality of our Savior's cleansing work. I'll try to explain that better next week. I'm just too quickly running out of time here this morning. So, 
A uh, ceremonial cleansing is one thing, but the reality is altogether wondrous. The reality of that cleansing. Because the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been sanctified sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ? How much more will the blood of Christ? Remember, dominant theme of Hebrews is more, better, greater, more. How much more were the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We need to embrace this today, all day, every day. This is our consistent priesthood in Christ. This is where the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, continuously keeps on cleansing us from all sin. Okay? Sins. All right. Father, I thank you for this class. I thank you for brothers and sisters that are excited to eat this material up. We want to digest it. We want to live it. Father, might we receive it with humility so that it dwells richly within each one of us. And let us speak to one another in, in these beautiful truths. Let us encourage one another in the, in the uh, appreciation and application that we're seeing for how we operate with cleansed conscience, how we operate with purified uh, natures, how we as a heavenly people are, are being made suitable as a bride for your son. Father, uh, open our eyes to these powerful truths. We want to live this out because clearly, Father, we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We do appear as lights in the world. And Father, I pray that we would learn what it means to to emanate this glory and uh, to represent our Savior in the same way. So Father, be at work. Make this scripture come alive that we can live it out day by day. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.